So we have spent the last uh, number of weeks with an interruption during Lent in the book of Romans. And the intent of this particular study was to try to get at the heart of what the reason is for the book of Romans. And I hope if you take anything away from this study, you uh, can see that it is a very uh, complex and um, and its, its purpose is far more than laying out some type of theological uh, diatribe. It's uh, given for a purpose, um, uh, the Apostle Paul wanting to get to Rome, wanting to promote unity among those in Rome, and then to move beyond Rome to Spain. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish this study tonight. And then next week, I'm going to show you a video. video uh, that I, I found very, very helpful when it comes to our understanding of how uh, the early church approached the scriptures. You know, this thing that we are in, uh, evangelicalism in the 20th and 21st century, is a unique uh, animal in the sense of how we approach the Bible and how to understand it. So next week, I want to show you a video and then what I want to do is I want to take the next two Wednesday nights off. So I just want to uh, create a little bit of space uh, so I can put some materials together for our next study, which we're going to uh, start on Wednesday, June the 1st. So next week, a video, two weeks off, and then uh, June 1st, we'll start a new study. I haven't decided uh, what we're going to talk about yet. I I have a little bit of a interest in uh, talking a little bit about um, why we we are so divisive um, in in our country right now, and there's an interesting angle to that, and it does have to do with how we approach religion and how we approach our Christianity, and so I might touch upon that for a little bit. Um, it has to do with identity. It has to do with how our identity informs how we see uh, the church and uh, her mission in the world, that type of thing. So that's where I'm leaning, unless the Holy Spirit kind of prompts me in a different direction. We'll probably do a little bit of talking about that. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to uh, finish up this section of chapters five through eight of Romans. We have said the last couple of weeks that this section is governed by different pronouns. Um, there's a generic one, all, such as all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We talked last week a little bit about we, where Paul puts himself in the mix of those specific individuals that we find in Rome. And tonight we want to talk about you and I. So what, what that means is we're going to be in chapter 6 and 8, and you're going to see how many times Paul uses the pronoun you. And then in chapter 7, uh, he switches to the pronoun I. So that, uh, these all are a complex way of communicating uh, but I think Paul specifically switches these pronouns because he has specific individuals, I think, that he has in mind as he addresses them. So let's move ahead and let's start with you. 
So I want you to come, if you have your Bible, to chapter six of Romans, and I'm just going to point out, beginning down in verse 11, I just want you to take note. Many times you don't notice these things when you're reading uh, casually, and but if you're really studying it, you'll find that these things are kind of like flags that are waving in the breeze as we kind of move through this section. So look at how many times either the word you or yourself uh, appears, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Uh, verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin, but rather offer yourselves to God. Offer the parts of your body to him. Verse 14, for sin shall not be your master. Verse 15, uh, since we shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin. Do you see that? It's like every third word is the word you. Uh, but thanks be to God, verse 17, uh, though you used to be slaves to sins, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. So there you see this pronoun in chapter six, and we'll come to chapter eight in a moment. You're going to see the same exact thing. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is kind of building upon that Adam and Christ comparison that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter five. In other words, there are kind of two ways through life, following the way of Adam and following the way of Christ. And then he gets specific. And what's really powerful about this section is he takes himself out of the equation, which is fascinating. And he says, you, and now he piles up all of these commandments. So this is an imperative section. And he, all of these things have a lot of rhetorical force to them. And it seems to me that the key to it all is verse 21 in chapter six. So if you come on down, here's I, I think what helps us to interpret this section. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Now, it seems to me that I think when he uses the term all, he's including both the strong and the weak, Jews and the Gentiles. When he uses the word we, he's including himself in uh, all of this um, uh, about the Jewish tradition that he laid out from the beginning. And then when he uses the word you, I think he is, has in mind the Gentiles. And in particular, the, the way of life they live prior to coming to Christ. And so this language, I think, is um, something that is pushing these Gentiles, remember, we've said, because we started at the back of Romans, and uh, we were reading backwards a little bit, these Gentiles were being um, very critical of the Jews that they were still so tied up in the Torah law, and so what we find is that 
now Paul is really putting it upon them to choose the better way. Now, he's not telling them to observe the law, but what he is telling them is to choose the way of Christ, and that is reflected in the moral commitments that they are going to make. Now, he uses a fascinating image here. Along with all the personal pronouns of you, now we're still in chapter six, notice how many times he uses the word slaves here. So in chapter six, uh, verse um, 16, don't you know that when you were, uh, uh, hold on, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Then come on down to verse 19. So now uh, he says, here, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you, uh, you were free from the control of righteousness. And then he uses that term one more time in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, He's using a metaphor here of slavery and freedom. Now, that, I think, does pertain not only to Jews, obviously, the whole Exodus story, but slavery and freedom was a big deal within the Roman Empire. There were those slaves that um, were indebted to their masters, but then there were freed slaves that somehow bought their freedom Uh, or their masters, after they had become Christians, set their slaves free. And he uses this metaphor here to describe almost for these Gentiles that uh, when you live in sin, you're as if you are enslaved to your master, which they would um, relate to. Uh, But then when you are set free, much like um, a bond servant, which Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, Paul uses of himself, I am a bond servant of Christ. Sometimes slaves were granted freedom, but they, they wanted to stay under the household of their master uh, willfully. So that, I think, is a Roman thing that's going on here. You were slaves to sin, but you've been set free now become a bondservant or a slave to God. Does that make sense to everybody? So when Paul calls himself a bondservant, he's saying, I'm a slave, yes, but I am doing so willfully. I am putting myself under the leadership of God and um, Christ. And so there is this sense that these Gentiles would understand what it would be like to be enslaved in some capacity, um, and then others that had been set free. That makes sense? So <clears throat> now that idea of slave uh, slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness is used 
with a different set of descriptors in chapter eight. Go over to chapter eight for a minute. <clears throat> I think it's talking about the same thing, but it uses a different image. Here, it's the language of the spirit and the flesh. So come down to verse nine. Now you'll notice as you read this paragraph, the word that is going to jump out uh, uh, in this these couple of paragraphs is spirit. So verse nine says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised him from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You see how many times the word spirit is there? He goes on the next paragraph. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not according to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, uh, put, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. You do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So spirit is the dominant theme here, but you'll see a capital spirit and you'll see a small letter spirit. And the capital spirit is the idea of the Holy Spirit, and it works somehow with our spirit. And so if we think of ourselves as body, soul, and spirit, these three components, our spirit or soul um, is what the Holy Spirit works with to increasingly help us be, to become more like Christ. So Christ and the Holy Spirit have kind of this integrated purpose of taking us away from our body of death, or as it's called here, the sin nature, and start to live in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know if that's working in us? Well, I think you have to cross-reference Paul to Galatians when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. I guess we know that the Holy Spirit's doing its work when we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the nine-fold fruit of the Spirit. So <clears throat> um, all of this is to say that he keeps talking you, 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 and it seems as though he is trying to get to the heart of the Gentiles to say, you're being very critical of these uh, Jewish uh, Christians who are trying to keep the Torah, but you don't understand that your life at one time was in slavery to the worship of other gods, uh, the lifestyle that went along with that. We all are aware of the idea of temple prostitution and different things that was going on, you know, in the, in the Roman Empire. Um, the idea is you've walked away from that, but it's the Holy Spirit that's changing you and helping you to break away from that lifestyle. 
So what, what I said in chapter six, verse 21 is a key. What benefit did you reap from that time uh, from the things that you are now ashamed of? In other words, as you look back, was there any benefit to living that way? No, uh, you're actually ashamed of them because it gives to you kind of a death-like experience. But verse 22 of chapter six, now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit that you reap leads to wholeness or holiness, and it res its result is eternal life. So in this section, the pronoun you, in my opinion, is a direct focus upon the Gentile component of the Roman house churches. And he is drawing upon their past, and he is saying, this is how you broke away from that type of life. It's the Holy Spirit that was working in you. So let me stop there and see if you have some questions or comments. Anything? So you can see um, Paul uses the word spirit about 10 times in chapter 8. And the Holy Spirit is that active, regenerative uh, energy that births within us a new creation. And that's what rescues us from the Adam line and allows us to live within the Christ line that has turned away from, you know, the uh, Adamic uh, type of, of life. So here you can see at the bottom of the slide, the way of Christ is a transformed people who will fulfill the Torah in the power of the spirit, not in the power of the flesh. And that will take us to chapter seven, where the frustration of the personal pronoun I is trying to keep the commandments of the Torah out of the flesh rather than with the help of the spirit. Can I clarify anything here? Have I confused you? Again, this whole section is very complex. It's very nuanced. And so in that, I think one of the things that we find is these pronouns helps us to sort out what Paul's trying to do to both sides of the Roman house church, the Gentiles and the Jews. Okay. Any thoughts? Okay, so that will bring us to chapter seven. And <laughs> I don't want to read this whole chapter, but I want you to, beginning in verse seven of chapter seven, glance your eyes all the way down to the end of the chapter. You should be seeing the word I jump out at you. Verse seven. Uh, verse 9, verse 10. Um, he also throws in a couple of me's in there as well. Uh, but then when you get down to verse 14, I, verse 15, I, um, verse 16, I, verse 17, I, 18, I, on and on it goes. If you were to underline it, and that's what I did in my Bible here, I mean, it. I, it's like Every fifth word is the word I, all the way through the chapter. 
So <clears throat> what is this all about? Well, this is probably one of the biggest areas of theological discussion in, um, in, in academic circles. And that is, who is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about a collection of people? Is he talking about a person before they were Christians or after they are Christians? So there's a lot of angles to this. It seems as though what is happening here, you have to go back to that illustration that we touched upon a couple of weeks ago up at the beginning of the chapter. So let's read that because I think that helps the rest of the chapter. Verse one, do you not know brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Verse five, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what was once uh, to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's the key. He's talking about an individual who's trying to keep the law out of his own flesh. And the, the, um, the illustration he is using is he's taking the example of marriage. The law binds these two people together as long as they're both living, but if one of them passes away, then that law has been done away with and the individual can get remarried, okay? Now, <clears throat> this is not so much a paragraph to talk about all the logistics of what the Bible teaches about marriage. It's more an example of, you see the key word in that paragraph that I read, the word law, keeps popping up. Law, 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 law. So here's my take on what's happening here. It seems as though the struggle that this individual or individuals, plural, is having here in Romans chapter 7 is the struggle of trying to please God by obeying the law and not being able to do it out of their own energy and their own effort. So if that is true, the I here could be anyone. It's not just Paul personally. What I think we often take this to mean is, oh, now Paul's talking about himself. Well, sure, he's talking about himself, but I think this is a collective I. And what I mean by that is this is anyone, it could be Roman uh, uh, Gentiles, or it could be Jewish uh, people, but if they're going to try to keep the Torah, and they try to do it 
as a way of pleasing God, as a way of out of their own effort obeying, they're going to fall short time and time and time again. And that's what he voices here when he talks about not being able to keep the commandment. So that brings us to verse seven. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Let me stop there for a second. The, the law is like a spotlight. So you have the beginning of civilization. You have the beginning of the nation of Israel in the book of Genesis. By the time you get to their 400 years of slavery, there's that theme again, um, <clears throat> in Egypt, uh, what we find is they are living out this um, life as God's people, um, kind of on their conscience alone. There's, there's not a written law. So when they are set free, they come to Mount Sinai, Moses receives the tablets, and then the book of Leviticus actually enumerates a lot of the Mosaic covenant. And what is that intended to do? Well, at least what Paul is saying here, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In other words, once God gave this law, all of a sudden, we now know the standard that he is uh, uh, pursuing in the life of the nation of Israel. And as a result, when <clears throat> the nation of Israel veers off into idolatry or some other type of sin, it's been defined. So, <clears throat> Let's think about ourselves as parents for a second. So we might have certain expectation of our, our children, but until we say something, sometimes it, it's not known that we, that's what we expect of them, okay? So we can not say something and internally have, how could he or she do this or that? But once we say, hey, I expect you to pick up your dirty clothes or whatever it may be, then all of a sudden it's known. And once it's known, there's a certain amount of responsibility now uh, that comes along with that. The problem is, if you're a slob, picking up your clothes is going to be hard because the most natural thing for you to do is to throw it on the floor, okay? So even though the law might be known, hey, I expect you to pick up your clothes, yet at the same time, a person that's sloppy and not a meticulous individual that wants to keep things neat and tidy, they are going to naturally fall back to their their habits, okay? And that will include, you know, not picking up after themselves. So I think what Paul is saying here is that when the law is given, when the law is given, there is now a responsibility that is given, and the nation was responsible now to live a certain kind of life. 
but they can't do it. Why? Because they're still in the flesh. They're still imperfect people. So look what it says here. Verse eight, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Uh-oh. Now, once the commandments has been revealed, now there's this pulling of what I want to do naturally versus what is expected of me. He says, once, uh, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive for, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded the, by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So let me use an illustration here. Okay. You've heard this illustration a hundred times, but it's a good one. If I print up a number of pieces of paper that says wet paint and hang them up around in different places, how many people will actually come up and touch the wall to see if it's really got wet paint? Some people will do that. I wonder if that's still wet. Okay. And even though it could be true, that uh, the paint is wet, that, but there's still a there's still a desire to find out for myself. But we all know what happens once we touch the wall, and it's true that it's wet paint. Now you have the death of paint on your fingers. Does that make sense? Okay, and now you've got to get that get rid of that. But your desire was to see if that was wet paint or not even though you couldn't trust the sign itself without touching it, you, do, you naturally do it. And when you do it, then it leads to certain consequences. Now you got to wash your hands. Now you got to get some paint thinner if it's the type of paint that doesn't wash off with water or whatever. Now that's a goofy illustration, but I think it illustrates what Paul is trying to get at here. And that is the commandment stirs up within me the desire to break the commandment. Does that make sense? Okay. So once you say, don't do it, I want to do it. Okay. And as a result of that, it leads to certain consequences. Look at verse 13. So, oh, verse 12, rather. So then the law is holy, or we might say that paint, what paint sign is good. It's good. And it, it intended a good thing. The commandment is holy, it's righteous, it's good. But did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced in me through what it was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, we get to see ourselves for who we really are at that point. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. There's that slave language again. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. There's that famous line. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin that's living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. 
for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. No, because you can't do it in your flesh. You can't do it in your flesh. For what I do is not the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So Paul has used the personal pronoun me and I all through this section. But I don't think he's just referring to himself. I think what he's doing is using a collective I. And at this point, I think he is talking both to Jews and Gentiles. So how does that pertain then to the strong and to the weak? Well, the weak, i.e. the Jewish believers, still think that they have to keep the law in some way to please God. And the point is you can't. You need the spirit. The Gentiles who are looking down uh, upon these Jews who are still trying to use the Torah law. Um, they are individuals that um, need something else. They can't, they can't keep the law on their own either. So um, the, the Gentiles won't succeed if they, if they were convinced by the weaker to try to keep the Torah law, they wouldn't succeed. So this is all a setup then for the Holy Spirit, which he then gets to in chapter eight. Um, the biggest revelation he has is in verse 21 of chapter seven. He says, for I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So again, not easy not easy text to sort through, but I don't think Paul is talking about himself as individually here. I think he's using the word I almost as a, let me give you an example, he says. So he's using himself as an example, but it's not just him. Does that make sense? It's the collective group that he is addressing, uh, that he is trying to move toward chapter eight, which is life in the Holy Spirit, following the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. That makes sense to everybody? Okay. Now, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't get into that. He doesn't talk about how we uh, become more sensitive to the Spirit. He's just stating the fact that the only way to transformation uh, is through the Holy Spirit that empowers us and energizes us. So here's what I think he's doing. In verses one through six of Romans seven, I think what he's trying to say is the Torah law is a temporary arrangement that was given by God through Moses. And it helped in a lot of ways, but it also revealed that we need something else. And the other thing that we need 
is Messiah. We need Christ. Secondly, the Torah's purpose is to reveal sin or magnify sin in such a way that it shows us our need for Christ and his spirit. So here's the way I put it here at the end of the slide. Paul then creates a speech and character to flesh out the purpose of the Torah and therefore its temporal restriction from Moses to Christ, all with the rhetorical aim of proving that transformation does not come through Torah, but it comes through the Holy Spirit. That makes sense? And then that's what he's trying to illustrate is a lived out theology of life in the spirit. And, um, you know, this uh, Torah that is such a big hang up uh, in the New Testament, when Paul establishes a new church and there are these other people that are coming along and kind of uh, trying to contradict what he has taught as he established churches, you see that over and over in the book of Acts. Uh, so this then becomes an issue at many of the churches that he writes to. Uh, the Torah is effective. It's good. It helps define sin, but it doesn't transform a person from the inside out. And as a result, the spirit is what is needed to, to accomplish that. Any thoughts on that? So we've covered kind of the you and the I sections here a little bit. Some questions or comments that you have? Now, we didn't do it justice. We could go through this at a lot slower pace, but it's very tedious, isn't it? It's a very tedious section. So how do we resolve this section? If this is a rhetorical pronoun I, I think what he is doing is giving mostly a comprehensive vision of how transformation can occur from the inside out in both the Jews and the Gentiles that are in the Roman house churches. It's also found in creation. So in chapter eight, look at verse 18. He, if this is all led up to this point. He says, in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We're not the only ones enslaved. Creation itself is enslaved which means that the institutions of, a, of the created order are enslaved as well. The social circles of the created order are enslaved as well. And this is what we see uh, played out on a regular basis. We, we're, we've been watching it for the last couple of months. Why on earth is Russia destroying another nation? And why are the Ukrainians uh, the objects of this type of um, obsession to take over that territory and stuff like that. So again, institutions, societal orders, um, all these things are bound to this slavery that is found 
until we come to life in the spirit and life in the spirit then frees us up to live a different kind of life and show that to other people as well. Any, any other thoughts on this section before I give one last slide that is gonna just kind of wrap up the whole book for us? Any questions? Easy peasy, right. <clears throat> yeah, you got it, right. All right, so here's been my goal, all right? Romans is a masterpiece. It is, I mean, it is something that is, you know, amazing man wrote this with his mind that uh, to be able to be led by the spirit to put this stuff down. But the way we read it might miss the point. So to read Romans well is to understand what Paul is trying to do in these Roman house churches. And that's where he profiles the strong and the weak at the end of the book. I wish he would have done that at the beginning of the book. I wish he would have set it up in such a way that the rest of it would flow, but that's not the way he chose to do it. So. We have said that the weak are Jewish believers in the stream of God's elective purposes to be the chosen people, to carry out God's will till Messiah comes. Um, he addresses in this book some of the questions that these Jewish believers might have about the faithfulness of God uh, because he brings up the surprising moves that God makes in the history of Israel, where um, <clears throat> In chapter 9 through 11, he spotlights their history and, um, you know, he, he talks about Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? That's a reverse order. Esau is the older brother. He shouldn't have been the one uh, and so forth. So what do we make of this God who, who is surprising? It makes un, un, uh, unexpected moves. So he's addressing them on that. Now, the strong are predominantly Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They broke away from worship of the uh, pantheon of gods that the Romans, uh, but they didn't feel any obligation to observe Torah laws, and rightfully so. I mean, they're not Jews, and that was given to the Jews all the way back in the time of Moses. However, their problem was the way that they became condescending to the Jewish believers who still had this, um, this commitment and this sense of obligation to the law. You and I would feel the same way. I mean, if you were learning the law your entire life, you just don't drop it overnight. So, um, but they were very condescending and critical of these Jews that they just couldn't let go of the law. So if we read Romans in that context, here's what I think we need to understand. This is not a book about how you get into heaven when you die. That's not the object of it. It's a pastoral letter. And it's a letter that is written to a specific 
group of churches at a specific time, and Paul has his own agenda. His own agenda is he wants them to be unified so that he can use them as a base to go on to Spain. We read that at the end. So Paul has his own self-interest at heart here, and that is, how can I establish a strong church that can be ascending church to beyond the, uh, the uh, area of Rome? And, um, and he, I'm sure, would expect financial support in his efforts to do that as well. So if you can keep all of these things in mind, when you read the book, you begin to see that the theology of it is intended for the practical side of bringing two very different groups of people together. And maybe that's the greatest value of this book. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but thanks be to God, there's the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that crosses all differences, no matter who we are no matter our gender, our ethnicity, our religious affiliations, uh, whatever it may be, but it has to be done through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that enables that to happen amidst a group of diverse people, okay? Because our natural inclination is I like who I, the people I like the best in life are the people that are like me. But the great value of loving people that are quite different than we are is to see the beauty of the mosaic that God has created in the body of Christ. That's it. That's what I have for you. Any thoughts? Thank you. Why, 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 you know, over the years, when you when you've heard so many messages on Romans, don't don't we we we, we really don't get this perspective. I mean, I'm sitting through all you know a half a dozen Baptist preachers and everybody else. <laughs> well, you, you know, even even in you know you don't get it even in in, in, in addition to you know the, the, they they're usually focused on, as you said sort of on the salvation message and using. That those pieces, but I'm I'm just I'm just surprised that, they, that I, I I was never aware of this sort of you know not, you know background prime you know the overall overarching sort of goal that Paul had beyond some of the some of the specific messaging. I think there's a couple of reasons. I think number one is the way Paul wrote the book is I think most people think that when you finally get to um, you know, the later chapters, uh, 14 through 16, where he talks about, um, you know, the strong and the weak. It, I think a lot of times people think that's just kind of an addendum, the real important stuff he put up front in the book. So I think the way we naturally read a book um, conditions us to, to read it that way. Secondly, is we think many times that the sole purpose of the Bible is somehow uh, to give us all the information we need 
uh, to be able to get into heaven after we die. And I think many times churches has been have worn such colored glasses. They don't understand that, although the Bible talks about that a little bit, the majority of the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. And I think a lot of times people don't realize that every, every book, every passage has a context. And that context is not us. That context is when it was written and to who it was written to. And I don't, th I don't think most people keep that in the back of their minds as they approach a book. And maybe the best way I can say it is this. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading somebody else's mail. It's not our mail. And if we can understand that, there's things we can take away from it. But what is the first application and what is the immediate need that prompted this writing? And if you can answer that question, I think you can then steer away from this prejudice of reading into the text, the, the way that we've been conditioned to, to look at it. And that is, you know, the Bible's all about the next life. No, it's not. If you read the Bible closely, you'll find that it doesn't give us a lot of information about the life hereafter. It just doesn't, which means that it's written primarily for these people at the time that they're living. It's easier, I think, for people. How do I want to put this? Yeah, Esty just said, it's easier for people. She used the word to dumb it down. Um, I'll use the word simplify, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's easier for people not to wrestle with the complexity of the Bible. And therefore, if you can make it all about one thing, and that is, it's all about getting saved. It's all about the next not the life, not this life. Then, you know, you can simplify a lot of things that way, because then you can disregard a lot of the complexities that are in the scripture. But once you see, you can't unsee. Okay? So <laughs> the danger of doing this Bible study is now... You can't get those pronouns out of your mind, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> They're there. You can't get away. You, right. But the problem, see, what I'm trying to say is once you see something, you're going, why didn't I see that before? Because we, I think we're all conditioned to look at things in particular ways. And I think that's true on all kinds of things of life. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you are, uh, religiously or politically or economically, we're all conditioned to kind of look through a lens and we tend to interpret life through that lens. So I don't think most, how do I want to put this? I don't want to disparage um, pastors. I think their motivation is good. They want to help people. But I don't think most pastors understand the complexity of the scripture how do here's the here's the best way i think i can say it 
the Bible is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. It's more descriptive than it is prescriptive. You've heard people say, everything you need to know is there in the Bible. No, it's not. It's not. It's just not. And to think that there's a verse for anything and everything that'll give you an answer for everything is to misuse the Bible. And actually you can justify anything that you want to do because there's a verse that you can pull out to, to justify it. The Bible's descriptive. Now it becomes prescriptive, but only after we've done the hard work of what the descriptive element of it is. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So it, with that in mind, it eases us a little bit to say, there are parts of the Bible we will never understand. We won't. And that's okay. Um, not the Bible has more, has sections of it that are more important than other sections of it. Romans is more important than Leviticus. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, let me get into the picture. It's May 4th. May the 4th be with you, right? That's right. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, bud. Did that help at all? No, yeah, I did. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah, so. It's just interesting that, you know, there's nothing, and then, I mean, there's no reason not to, that you can provide both perspectives. I do think you're right. They do emphasize the first part, the latter part is more. Not an afterthought, but it's something that doesn't get doesn't get talked about as much. Yeah. Uh, and but, kind uh, of the and kind of the the type of church it is um, will lean in particular directions as well. So uh, a lot of evangelical churches uh, they they get afraid. How do I want to put this? They get afraid of diving into things that are mysterious. They like certainty. Okay. And that's, and they want certainty. And a lot of times they don't want to ask questions that brings up, you know, uncertainty and that type of thing, but you can't get away from it. It's just the way it is. There's parts of the Bible that you can't nail down and it's okay. That's, that's all right. We do our best to try to understand it, but our life doesn't depend upon whether we understand that. Or not. I do think, yeah, I do think that one, one of the challenges you, as you talked about is trying to, whether it's in Romans or whether it's in Isaiah or whether it's in whatever, you know, Job or whatever, when trying to determine when something is written that applies directly to you versus that applies to somebody else or something else going on in that book. That's right. It, it, it is easy to, to grab a couple of verses and, and not a, sort of out of context and say, this applies to me, you know, and in some cases, I think it applies to both. Yeah. But on the other hand, I, I do think there are cases where it's easy to grab something and this really applies to somebody in that, you know, to being talked about in that book at that period of time or the people of Israel or whoever. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's a tough part. Of in terms of that terminology versus, you know, you, you really can't. It's, yeah. more, it's more historical and more contextual, maybe, I don't know. 
layout. I think that I think you're right on there. I think that it, you know, how do I want to put this? Maybe the problem with a lot of people that approach the Bible, they take the Bible as the end of the discussion rather than the beginning of it. And what I mean by that is, oh, this story or this passage or whether it's Isaiah or the Psalms or whatever it may be. How do we look at that in the 21st century um, rather than being stuck in a time that had a much different context and a much different culture and that type of thing? So maybe if, you, if we can understand that the Bible is first descriptive before it's prescriptive, and if we can keep in mind that the Bible's the beginning of the discussions that we have and not the end of it, I think we're on a better track. And, um, you know, if we fleshed out what we've studied over the last several weeks, you know, what we might find that this is, this is applicable in a variety of situations, not just a single subject. And this is something that we keep in mind when we come up to something as simple as, am I trying to do this out of my own flesh? And, and what is my motivation? Is, am I thinking I'm pleasing God because I'm doing this out of my own effort? Or is, am I actually being prompted by the Spirit? Because that's a subject that we were talking about tonight. And why do I think the Spirit's prompting me in this direction? So, you know, last weekend, uh, Esty was down in Columbus for the PFLAG uh, retreat, and she came back because she mama, uh, not people like mama bears, I'm sorry. Uh, and she came back more motivated, right? SD. And you said, I just feel the spirit is, is working in me to, we need to try to do more to help people understand that they're accepted and loved for who they are. And, you know, how that looks, I don't know at this point, how that looks in terms of different initiatives. I don't know, but she felt that prompting, right? So there's the spirit at work there. And I think that enables us to do things at times that, you know, maybe we naturally don't want to do or don't feel we have the resources to do or um, out of our own energy or knowledge, we can't feel we can't. But as long as we're open, Maybe that's the point of this whole section that we've just looked at. Life in the spirit is a life that leads to life. I think that's kind of the point that Paul's getting. So. Right. Thank you. Yep, you bet. Okay. So any other questions before we close up tonight? Any other comments? I think the video we're going to watch uh, next week, Brad Jerzak, um, is going to give us some some real food for thought, and so we'll we'll watch that and and uh, tease out a couple things there, and uh, and then we'll start a new topic soon. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. Have a good one. We'll see you guys you later. Too. Bye. Bye. Thank you.